What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Founders Journal. This is your host, Alex Lieberman. Founders Journal is my personal diary made public for the world. And today I'm doing a true journal style episode. No scripting, just a few bullets and the rest is from the dome. So you can feel like you're sitting behind me as I am writing in my personal journal. Let's hop into it. Okay, two housekeeping items. The first is that we've done a few of these journal entry uh, style episodes before. I called them temperature checks. People really liked them. They liked kind of this raw, vulnerable, unscripted approach to kind of just taking everything that's in my brain as I think about life and business and putting it onto paper. So I'm going to do it again. I'm basically just going to have the same prompt. And the prompt is what's going well, what's not going well, and what have I learned? And I basically just have bullets, that's it. The rest that I'm gonna fill in is literally what's coming to mind as I speak through the mic. So that's the first thing I'm gonna start talking in a second. The second is, as you can tell, I sound a little congested. That's because I'm getting over a cold. So I hope that um, it's not too distracting. I appreciate you bearing with me. And hopefully by next recording, I will be back to normal. So let's hop into this journal entry. What is going well? Every day, we are getting closer to product market fit with StoryArb. For those of you that don't know what StoryArb is, StoryArb is my executive ghostwriting agency where we help top execs and CEOs of B2B companies. This ranges from investors to startup founders to large company executives. StoryArb is where we help them get the stories, lessons, opinions, and insights out of their brain and turn it into great social content that helps them build audiences online. And the reason I wanted to call out that us getting closer to product market fit is something that's going well is because I think there is just so much focus these days on speed. Speed of you launch a business and announcing the next day that you hit $10 million in pipeline and interest. Or I remember when Ramp, which is like the unicorn fintech company that does amazing work, but they were heralded for a long time as being the fastest company to hit $100 million in ARR. And so there's just this fascination with speed. And I think it's great, but only if you have the fundamentals to support that speed. And so I think sometimes this emphasis on speed and this obsession with it causes entrepreneurs and founders to build their companies faster than their company can support it, which ends up being counterintuitive because you can't deliver a great experience to all these customers that you've brought in. And fundamentals take time to build. Like, you know, I wanna say it took us three years to get Morning Brew's fundamentals right. And finding product market fit can take months to years. And that means that my view is, is in the early days of a business, until you've hit true product market fit, you should be measuring success in your business by the speed of your product or service evolving versus the speed of your revenue growth. So for example, right now for StoryArb, we have, you know, about a million dollars in annualized revenue, which is like $83,000 a month in monthly revenue. Other than knowing that we're profitable, and that we're building up a cash cushion and we can kind of pay for our headcount. I really don't care about our financials right now. I care about every day, how is what we are offering to our clients getting significantly better such that a month from now, when we look back, we see that we've made market improvements 
in what we offer to clients such that we think we are that much closer to product market fit. Like our goal is to get to product market fit by year end. By the way, there's a whole episode we could do about what actually do we define as product market fit. I remember that Raul, the founder of Superhuman, did a really good article on he tried to create a new formula for product market fit, which if I remember correctly, basically asked a series of questions to customers being like, if our product what disappeared tomorrow, how disappointed would you be? From very disappointed to not disappointed at all. And basically the way he calculated product market fit is I wanna say at least 40%, I could be wrong on the number, don't quote me, but at least 40% of customers had to respond, they would be very disappointed. For us, the way I think about it in StoryArb is honestly, we should probably look at a metric like that and do kind of a monthly survey of our customers. But the way I'm looking at it is uh, retention. Uh, the hardest part of this business and any agency business is not just having like project-based work with customers where they churn every few months. So my goal is how do we get to a place where our product is so good that our average customer works with us for at least eight months? And if we're at least at eight months, then I think we can start thinking about what is the infrastructure that allows us to scale from a million dollars in annualized revenue to 5 million. Second thing that's going well is coffee chats. This sounds like a very small thing, but over the last few weeks, I've had coffee chats with different entrepreneurs and I've had no agenda other than being interested in them and learning as much as I possibly can. And I found these coffee chats to be super energizing. I really think they are the highest leverage, most efficient way to learn because if you find time with truly elite thinkers and you ask good questions, they will share their views and opinions that they've potentially taken decades and thousands or tens of thousands of hours of reading and experiences to arrive at. And you'll basically be able to bypass all of that with a 30-minute conversation. And so this is almost like me saying this right now is kind of just a reminder for myself of when I have free time on my calendar, I definitely want to spend more time talking to interesting people. I think I lost a little bit of it. First of all, when I was CEO of Morning Brew, I spent a lot of time kind of on these like networking and serendipity chats. And at some point I felt bad that like I was doing too many of them and I was doing a disservice to the role of CEO of Morning Brew and running the company. And then also with the pandemic, obviously they became harder. And then I think with the pandemic, I became a little bit more of like a homebody and a hermit. And I've gotten lazy about like going back into New York City and meeting people in person. But this is just the reminder of, for myself of how energizing I found these last called three or four chats to be. Next thing that's going well is I started working with my first coaching client. I am not a formal coach at all. I have not received uh, coaching training, but I have had a number of people reach out to me, a number of entrepreneurs reach out to me expressing interest in having me coach them. And I've taken on one client who wants support while scaling his seven-figure software development agency. And he also wants to grow as a creator, uh, refining his content strategy and building his brand online. And I have to say the first call with him, I've actually done two now. These calls have been super fulfilling because it allows me to problem solve with a smart person, which I really enjoy doing. It allows me to share lessons and ways of thinking that I hope can save this person time and pain. I also get to practice how I ask questions to people and I often find like <laughs> some of the best coaches and even therapists are just really good at asking questions that gets a person to think deeper and get all of their thoughts out into the open, which oftentimes alleviates a lot of kind of the pressure or kind of like mental load that someone's feeling. And the other cool part about this is, you know, I get to 
be paid to learn about a new type of business or industry that I haven't had exposure to. And, you know, in a really cool way, like I would pay people to learn about an industry. So to be paid to learn about it is, you know, such a privileged um, position that I'm in and I feel super grateful for. So I've been enjoying coaching so far and we'll see where it goes. And the final thing that's going well is my social media addiction. You guys have heard me talk about this like five dozen times and you're probably getting sick of it, but it's been kept in check. Ever since getting back from Africa, my social media usage has been in a really good place. After a few weeks of being home from my honeymoon, I did feel myself starting to slip a little bit, like my screen time was starting to go up. So I set up a proactive system that has worked very well so far. And the system involves a combination of what I call batching and accountability. So instead of trying to remove social media use altogether, which is not realistic, I've created basically three windows per day when I go on social, morning, afternoon, and night. And I write these three slots. So I write morning, afternoon, and night in my journal. And whenever I go on social, I will end up marking a check or an X after I've gone on social and that just indicates that I've completed the slot. So that's the batching part. And what I like about the batching part is it allows me to practice social media usage with moderation versus just completely going cold turkey. And then the accountability part is my wife checks in on my usage every few days. And what's beautiful about this is she is the most disciplined person I know. So having her hold me accountable lights a fire under my ass to not screw up and have to admit to her that I spent more than my three allotted times on social in a given day. So that's what's going well. What is not going well? The main thing that is not going well is I feel a fair bit of boredom right now. I've had this feeling recently where Basically, I have my entire morning planned out perfectly. So I'll start my day and I have basically, let's call it everything from 7.30 a.m. to 12 or one o'clock booked out with calls, focused work to do, tasks I need to complete, and my mornings feel great. And then I get to my afternoon and I look at my calendar and it's blank. And in a way, that feeling of the blank calendar feels a lot like the early days of Morning Brew after I left Morgan Stanley, where my calendar was empty and I had to create structure. And the only thing that's different now is back then when I was just getting started with Morning Brew, I basically had unlimited things to work on and I just didn't know how to prioritize all of them. And so an open calendar felt overwhelming because I wasn't sure what to put in the calendar blocks. Whereas today, I don't have unlimited things. I actually feel like I have fewer things than my amount of time in my day. So the question becomes, what do I do with this boredom? I've always been told by people far wiser than me that it's good to learn how to be bored and how to sit in your boredom. But I also believe that too much boredom leads to unproductive rumination and ultimately doing activities that pull you away from being the person that you wanna be, which for me, as you all know, is doom scrolling on Twitter. So then the question is, what do I do about this feeling of boredom? And I think there's a few things I can do. I think I can pick a specific project if there's something I know that points me in the direction of who I wanna become. So say I'm interested in learning more about current issues in mental health treatment, which I am interested in because I think it's crazy. We've had more mental health startups created than ever before, more venture funding for the space than ever before, yet mental health in the United States has never been this bad. So it's just a fascinating problem to me. So if that was a project that I was interested in diving deeper into, I could create a default behavior that whenever I'm bored, I read or listen to something in the space to replace my boredom with that. 
let's say I don't have a project that I want to commit myself to, then I basically can have behaviors that I can commit to that I replace with boredom and I deem them to be valuable behaviors that are aligned with who I want to be. So things like long walks, calling family or friends, reading books, etc. The other thing I just am keeping top of mind as I talk about boredom is I have to remind myself that productivity does not mean crossing tasks off a list and having, you know, calls from morning to night on your calendar. And potentially things that I'd consider boring, like reading an academic study, could actually be productive if it helps push forward my ultimate goals. And this makes me think about Warren Buffett who, you know, basically spends all of his days reading. He this, supposedly the guy cranks through 500 pages of annual reports and books a day to get smarter about investing. And I'm sure he doesn't consider the act of reading for 10 hours a day to be unproductive. But I think my very task-oriented brain completely would find it unproductive if I was to do that same thing. So I think it's also just important to understand kind of maybe the misperception of what productivity and boredom means. We're going to take a quick break, but more from Founders Journal when we get back. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Final section, what have I learned? Bunch I've learned in the last week. The first is, and this goes back to what I was saying about just the beauty of meeting really smart entrepreneurs, having coffee chats with them and asking them interesting questions. I spoke to a founder, his name is Aditya. He has a venture studio that he's been building for the last eight years since college. And I started just learning more about his story. And what I realized about him was he's very interested in um, global politics and specifically about India as a country, the economy, Indian politics. He grew up in India. I believe his family still lives there. He lived in India until he was 15 and then he came to the US to go to college and he just shared some really interesting facts with me about India that got me more interested in paying attention to kind of the Indian startup, climate, economy, culture, et cetera. Here are the stats for you. India's economy grew 7% in the last year to $3.5 trillion in GDP. And India is projected to ultimately, I believe in 2075, get to $52 trillion. So that's more than 10x, 12x. Supposed to get to $52 trillion, surpassing the US and becoming the second largest economy in the world to China. India's median age, I found this fascinating. India's median age is 28, which is 10 years younger than the US's median age of 38. And 65% of India's population, or 910 million people, which is more than two and a half times the entire population of the US is under the age of 30. So 65% of India's population is under the age of 30, and that is 910 million people, and the US has 340 million people. So there, there are two and a half times the entire population of the US of people in India who are under 30 years old. What that tells me is you have this massive, like truly hard to fathom population of working age people who are going to be working age for the next three plus decades. And then the other thing he shared with me, which I had no idea about and now want to learn more about is he said that India has a more sophisticated payment network than any other country in the world. It's called UPI. It was developed by the Indian government. And basically what he said is no one exchanges physical money 
in India. Everyone just has a QR code. You scan someone's QR code to send them money. You type in how many rupee you want to send them. You send it to them and it instantly sends. So it goes from your bank account to theirs instantly. There's no delay. And when I brought up things like Stripe or PayPal with him, he's like, yeah, UPI is literally decades ahead of any other technology. And so all this to say that it makes me want to pay more attention to India because every year that goes by, the country will play more and more important of a role on the world stage. Second thing I learned is just more and more about the mind of a founder. I was at a an event this morning um, for post-exit founders. So I'm in this amazing text group that was started by a friend of mine. It has 700 people that are founders who sold their company in the last 10 years. And there are these monthly meetups in different cities around the world. So I went to this meetup in New York and there were probably 30 post-exit founders. We were all in a circle and the host of this meetup, this guy, Simon, asked everyone, he said, share your name, share your company and who you sold it to, and share what you do on the weekends. And what's fascinating to me was not just the fact that people answered these three questions, but everyone answered a question that wasn't even asked. So everyone answered what their name was, they answered what their company is and who it was sold to. Then before they shared what they do on the weekend, they said what they're doing next. So no one was ever asked what they're doing next, but everyone decided to share what they're doing next. And I found this fascinating. One, how even though founders are thought to be kind of like original thinkers and kind of move to the beat of their own drum, once one person shared what they were doing next, everyone followed. And the second is, it makes me wonder like, why do people feel so much pressure to share what's next? Why does there have to be a next? Uh, why does that next thing have to be building a business? Because every founder who said what's next, it was all around the next company they're building. It wasn't about a hobby they've taken up or a charity that they're involved with. And so I found that fascinating. And again, I think there are many entrepreneurs and serial entrepreneurs who truly like are living their deepest values and purpose by continuing to build companies. But what this experience again calls out to me is I just think a lot of people get sucked into the winless game of building companies for non-values-based reasons. And I like calling it out one, because it's a reminder for myself, but also because what I'd hate to see is 30 years from now, someone who built five companies and accumulated a billion dollars in wealth and by all measures, is wildly successful, but they feel wildly unsuccessful in terms of their happiness and the things that matter most to them in their life. So that's one other thing I learned. Next was this talk given by Bill Gurley, who is the general partner at Benchmark. He's like a legendary investor. He gave a talk at the All In Conference. All In is an amazing business podcast, if you don't know it. I'll link in the show notes to the Bill Gurley talk. There are basically two big lessons from the Bill Gurley talk. First of all, it was a masterclass in kind of like public speaking and performative speaking. But I found it so interesting because when you watch this, you wouldn't define Bill Gurley as as a expert, refined public speaker, like you would like a Tony Robbins. But he was exceptional in conveying his views and being persuasive. And I think largely it was because he has thought so much about the thesis of his presentation, and he did such a good job of sharing examples to paint a picture of his thesis. And his thesis was relatively novel, like it's not something I've heard talked about a ton before. So I would watch the talk for what it looks like to in a, an unorthodox way, be a great public speaker. But the main topic of the chat, and I'll just outline it briefly, is he talked about this idea of regulatory capture. Sounds super boring. I never really studied it. The idea of regulatory capture is that corporations will ultimately draft laws or lobby to have laws drafted that are written into law, and it ends up benefiting that company, but no one else. And so kind of the traits of regulatory capture are 
an incumbent corporation like a Comcast or an ExxonMobil, they have lobbyists that get laws to be passed through Congress. And those new laws are written in a way where the beneficiary of the new law is the company who pushed to have it written. And what's so concerning about regulatory capture is it's good for the company, but it's net bad for everyone else, for society, for people, and it's anti-competitive. So it's bad for new companies who want to try to create innovative products in the space where regulatory capture has happened. And Bill Gurley gave a few great examples. The, to me, the best example that just feels most prescient is he shared how, you know, there, there are COVID tests and the technology for these rapid tests, he said, has existed for actually many decades. In Germany, there are 96 approved COVID tests. So if you want to, in Germany, get tests for COVID, there are 96 different products you can buy. Therefore, the average cost of a COVID test in Germany is like $1 to $2. In the US, there are only three approved, three FDA approved COVID tests, which means the average cost of a COVID test in the US is like $15 to $20. Why? Because the person in the FDA, the man in the FDA who approved the three COVID tests worked at two of the companies that had their COVID test approved. Another example is Comcast, who basically has lobbied for years to have citywide Wi-Fi uh, blocked in Philadelphia. So there can't just be general public free citywide Wi-Fi because of course that would hurt Comcast business. And so this has been at the detriment of all the citizens in Philadelphia not getting to benefit from a free public good. So regulatory capture is super interesting. It's something to look into. I'll link to the Bill Gurley talk so you can get a sense of what he talks about. Last two things that I've learned. First one is Kevin Ryan. He's officially my favorite entrepreneur. He gave an amazing talk on the My First Million podcast. I'll link to it in the show notes as well. He's been my favorite entrepreneur for a while. He's built several super successful companies from MongoDB to Business Insider to Guilt Group to Zola. And he now has a combination of both a venture studio where he incubates companies and a venture capital firm where he funds companies. His company is called Alicorp. And what I find fascinating about his business is he has his team dive super deep into specific industries that he believes are going to be the beneficiaries of 30-year positive trends. So he's betting on things like psychedelics. He's betting on things like healthcare because the system's so uh, incredibly broken. He's betting on things like robotics. And so his team goes down these rabbit holes of these industries. They talk to tons of people in the industry. They do tons of research. They come out of the rabbit hole with a business idea. And then he helps to incubate the idea. If it passes certain hurdles, he'll then fund it. And what I'm most fascinated by is both his process for surfacing great business ideas. Like how do they actually find great ideas? He gave one example of, it was such an obscure business, but a marketplace for cargo ship parts that basically the example he uses, like if you have a cargo ship that's going across the world, if it gets to a port and the boat breaks down or there's an engine issue and you need a new part, how are you getting that part? Like there aren't just people right around the port that have that part. So the idea is a marketplace for cargo ship parts and they launched this business or they came up with the idea after someone on his team attended three hyper niche maritime industry trade conferences and talk to tons of people in the space. And I just like love these stories about just like gritty, unsexy tactics that need to be used in order to find problems in any industry. I'm also 
equally as inspired by the emphasis that Kevin Ryan has always put on his family while having the wild success he's had. So again, I'll link to the convo in the show notes. He spoke to my friends Sam Parr and Sean Purry on the My First Million podcast, and so you can hear him talk more about his story. And the final thing I've learned, because this is turning into a very long episode, so I promise this is the last thing. I hope it's been interesting though, and my nasally voice hasn't been uh, too brutal is I've been thinking a lot about how I think about creators, content creators, and I'll just share high level kind of my views right now. I am more bullish on B2B creators versus B2C. One, because I think business to consumer companies are way harder to build than business to business. I also think there's been a lot of focus on people launching businesses with B2C creators, but not a lot of people have launched businesses with B2B creators. I also think that 99% of creator businesses will fail, not because I'm bearish on the creator economy or creators, I'm actually hyper bullish on them, but I just think a lot of creators are gonna launch businesses as a short-term cash grab. They're not gonna think about how do I actually build a great product? They're not going to get customer obsessed. They're just going to view it as I can easily just like launch a commoditized product, slap a logo on it and use my built-in audience to drive sales. That's great if you want to acquire customers, but if you want to retain customers, it's never going to work unless you're customer and product obsessed from day one. So the 1% of creator businesses that work are going to be businesses that creators launch but the business has a good enough product where the business could have succeeded on its own without a creator, and the creator was simply rocket fuel on top of an already existing fire. The other perspective I have is creators are all put in the same bucket. I actually think there's different types of creators. I think you have marketing-driven creators who are basically built-in marketing channels, but they're not gonna actually help with anything related to the business. Marketing-driven creators are totally fine. I think you just have to be smart about the equity structure you set up with them if you launch a business with them. I also think purely marketing-driven creators have to be compared to any other paid marketing channel like Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, Snapchat ads, et cetera. And then I would say you have operational creators. So an example of that would be like my friend launched a business called YT Jobs. It's a job board for where you can find YouTube editors, YouTube producers, and he launched it in partnership with a huge uh, YouTube creator um, and kind of like thought leader. His name is Patty Galloway. And what I view Patty as is as an operational creator because Patty does have a huge audience of YouTubers who will be YT Jobs customers because they're gonna be looking for YouTube editors and producers, but also Patty so intimately understands the customer for YT Jobs that he can really help from a product perspective to inform the future product roadmap of the business. And then the final thing is I'm fascinated by the idea of using StoryArb, which is my ghostwriting agency, as an incubator for creators. So the idea is step one is having executives pay StoryArb to create social content on their behalf to build up their audiences online. What I love thinking about is, is step two, how do we actually participate in the future of these professionals we've turned into creators by launching businesses with them once we've helped them build audiences on their social accounts? And so I view StoryArb as the foundation for what ultimately can be kind of upside in many parts of a creator's journey. We participate in the first part of creator's journey, which is turning a professional into a creator. And the way we participate in that upside is them paying us a monthly agency fee. But then chapter two is once we've helped a client become a big enough creator online, how do we participate in the upside by helping them launch a business that then they can be the best marketing channel for because we turn them into a creator. That was a lot. 
I'm going to stop there. See, this is what happens when I don't have a script and I just have um, a journal prompt and a few bullet points as I talk forever. But hopefully you at least found one piece of insightful content here. I would love to hear your thoughts on just like the journal entry episode in general and if you think I should do more of them. But also if there was anything in this episode, because I talked about a bunch of things that resonated with you specifically. And also we're 29 minutes in. And so if you got to this part of the episode, I love you. I think it's incredible to have listeners who listen this long to a monologued episode. So even if you have no thoughts about the episode, even if you have no thoughts about journal entry, but you got to this point in the episode, shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and just say what's up because I want to get to know you because you're an amazing listener. As always, thank you so much for listening to Founders Journal and I'll catch you next episode. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.